This season, we've been getting into the autumnal mood with gothic short stories, Victorian fiction, and an upcoming exploration of horror literature. Today, we're re-releasing our episode on Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, a work that fits perfectly into our seasonal theme. We hope listening or re-listening to our discussion about this classroom staple will be enhanced by all the additional gothic content in the novel pairings feed this fall. Welcome to Novel Pairings, a podcast dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. Each episode, we'll discuss one classic book and share some recommendations for more contemporary reads that feature similar themes. As two nerdy bookworms, we appreciate the role of classic lit, but we won't get too academic about it. We'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe, and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. Hey, Chelsea. Hi, Sarah. How are you today? I'm good. I'm feeling a little bit like the kid who didn't do her homework in class (laughs) (laughs) and is maybe feeling slightly unprepared and nervous, but I'm still excited to talk to you about Frankenstein today. Me too. I think we can be really upfront. And I will just say I read the introductions to this. I watched... Mary Shelley on Hulu. It's not that great, but it was fine. Bummer. Um, (laughs) And then I just read Spark Notes because I did not have it in me to power through reading Frankenstein. Even though it's, I mean, it's not a bad book. Like it's, I love the history of it. It's pretty cool, but the language is a lot and my brain is just not there right now. The language is a lot. It is old. (laughs) The language just feels old and dated. The sentences are so long. And I agree. It's not a bad book. I, I just think it's a book that you have to be in the right mood for. I wasn't, you weren't, but that's okay. (laughs) I am in the mood to chat about it because like you said, it has a great history. It brings up the story itself, brings up so many interesting themes that are fun to debate and chat about. So I'm still really looking forward to this one. I also didn't reread it for this episode. I have taught the book four or five years running. So I feel pretty comfortable diving in to to chat, but I guess we'll see. (laughs) I, I mean, I think that you probably have much more familiarity with it than I do. That's for sure. Cause I haven't taught it. I didn't read it in school. So should we give a quick summary before we give a little bit more background information about how we're approaching this book? Yeah, I'll start and then you fill in with what I'm missing. (laughs) (laughs) So Victor Frankenstein is our protagonist. He is brilliant, creative, obsessed with the sciences at an early age, and he suffers a great loss as a, as a child. His, his mother dies of scarlet fever, I think. Um, and then he kind of dedicates his life work to seeing if he can create life. So he puts together this creature from dead body parts that he digs up at the cemetery. <laughs> 
Yep. Gross. (laughs) Gross. And he wants it, this creature to be the perfect human being. He specifically chooses the, the most attractive parts. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> um, and he successfully brings this creature to life. But then when it comes to life, he's terrified of it. The creature opens its eyes. Victor freaks out, runs away, and completely abandons the creature. So then the creature goes kind of you know, out on his own, trying to figure out what is this world all about? Every person he meets is terrified of him. He ends up committing multiple murders. And then Victor meets back up with the creature and they discuss, (laughs) they have this long-winded discussion. (laughs) Really long. (laughs) About a creator's responsibility to his creation. And I don't know. I mean, are are we spoiling this one? Should we keep going? Or is that like good enough? That's good. I mean, that's pretty much good enough. I guess like the couple things that I would add, this is an epistolary novel and also told in some other texts and forms. So it's told by this guy who meets Victor Frankenstein. Robert Walton. (laughs) Yeah. And he comes across Victor Frankenstein and gets told this story. So it's like a story within a story. And we get all of these letters and this history from Victor. And so the the style of it is pretty interesting. Oh, Penny had to add her two cents. (laughs) Yeah, that is important. That's important for what we'll talk about in a bit with the gothic novel. And also important thematically. The only time I read this book for a class was in a class called History of the Book, and it was in grad school, and it was a history of like the book as a textual or as a tactile object. And we read this one because of the form and also because of how many revisions it's gone through and how it kind of dipped in popularity and then surged back up with penny dreadfuls and cheap books being mass marketed. So yeah, I think the form is hugely important and something I almost always forget about. Like I go to teach it and I open the book and I'm like, oh yeah, Robert Walton. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it's, it's one of those things. I think that this is one of those books that lives in the public consciousness because the monster is iconic in film history and just pop culture. And so Um, I mean, the common misconception is, of course, that we call the monster Frankenstein. Really, that's Victor Frankenstein. That's his name. The monster is just referred to as the monster. But I think that the assumption is also just that this is a horror story. And then when you do go and open it and you're like, oh, this is told in letters. What? It's a little confusing because I just don't. I think that's a part that just gets like tossed aside. Totally. Yes, I I think that's absolutely right. And I, I do think that this can be a tough one for all sorts of readers because we have all of these conceptions of what this book is about and how it's going to make you feel as a reader. And it's probably more dry than the retellings and the way that the story has lived on after the book. So what do you do to get students into this one because I can totally imagine having picked this one up in 
high school and just being like, nope, (laughs) no, thank you. (laughs) And just giving up right away because it's so dense. And you know what the writing reminds me of? And we'll talk about Mary Shelley herself, but she was only 19 when she wrote this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because you've taught teenagers, you know, the super earnest kids who really want to be good writers. So they use a bunch of extra words in their writing and they just like try and fluff their writing up as much as possible because they want to be great writers. Yes. That's kind of what this reminds me of a little bit. <laughs> With all due respect to Mary, because she's really cool. Yeah. But that's what the writing reminds me of. It's like, you know, you're trying a little too hard, honey. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. I mean, I have to say, I don't, I'm not sure I've ever successfully taught this novel in a way that makes the kids fall in love with it. And I think probably part of that is like, this isn't one of my personal favorites. So I'm not offended when they don't like it Mm -hmm. as I might be with other books. But I I think that telling them, talking a lot about the history, a lot about Mary Shelley's age, how she maybe was influenced by her own life to write this book, that definitely helps. I, I mean, I read a lot of it allowed to them and try to like make it more dramatic like the the scene where the creature comes to life and then i i think that one of the best things is to frame the entire book as a debate about whether the creature is guilty of i mean we know he committed murder but whether he's responsible for his actions and who's responsible and checking in on that question a lot Kids have strong opinions about it either way. Also, I'm calling him the creature. You called him the monster. He's called the monster in the book, but I always insisted that my students call him the creature until the end. And then we can talk about whether he's a monster or not. Yeah, I, I, that's like one of my main things that I do in the class. Oh, I like that. And I, I like the conversation that that starts of the importance of language and naming So that's really cool. Okay. So you brought up that you focus a lot on the history. So that's, that's where I approached this book from. Did you ever watch Drunk History? Oh yes. But I don't think I've watched this one. Okay. There is an episode (laughs) in season six. It's on Hulu and it's called, Are You Afraid of the Drunk? And it (laughs) It's all about how Frankenstein came to be and you need to watch it. (laughs) Okay, I will. Do you want to retell the retelling from Drunk History a little bit? (laughs) Yeah, this is going to be sparse on details. There's a lot more to it. But basically, Mary Shelley and her husband, Percy Bysshe Shelley, famous poet, They go on vacation and they're in Geneva and they're hanging out and Lord Byron, famous poet, invites them over. And so they're all hanging out in his big, beautiful house. And I mean, you assume that poets get together back then and they're going to have like these deep conversations and wild parties and like have a bunch of fun. And they kind of did, but also... It was really crappy outside, so they were, like, stuck indoors together. Very (laughs) 2020-esque. And they had to find some entertainment to pass the time. So these radical thinkers, they decide, well, we're going to come up with ghost stories and scare each other. And 
Mary Shelley actually tells this origin story herself in the author's introduction. And she says, I love this line. She says that they decide we'll each write a ghost story, said Lord Byron. And we so we did it. There were four of us. And she talks about how each one went about their ghost story. But then she also says the illustrious poets also annoyed by the platitude of prose speedily relinquished their uncongenial task. Like the poets got bored (laughs) with telling a story in prose and not using all their super flowery poet language. And she tried to think of a story and she tried so hard and she couldn't think of anything. But then one night she goes to sleep and she wakes up with nightmares of these incredibly scary visions. And she sees this pale student leaning over his creation. And she basically pictures Victor Frankenstein creating the monster and having it come to life. And this this corpse wakes up and she's she's terrified and frightened and decides, oh, that would make an excellent story. And she decides that she really wanted a story that would just curdle people's blood and make them super, super terrified, which I love that that's exactly what she's going for. So she writes Frankenstein and gets it published. First, I believe anonymously because Mm -hmm. they wouldn't publish her and they were like, nobody's going to buy this if they think a woman wrote it. (laughs) You silly lady. And Shelley the poet wrote an introduction to it. And so a lot of people kind of assumed, well, maybe he wrote this or like when her identity came out, they thought "Mm, he probably helped her a whole lot. So I love that in her introduction, she basically comes out and says, he wrote the introduction and he inspired me, like he encouraged me, but that's all he did, people. I wrote this whole dang thing myself. And I love that. Yeah. So- That's the very broad overview of how this book came to be. And it sounds like folklore, right? Like these people sitting in a mansion telling each other ghost stories. But by all historical accounts, that's the way it went down. Yeah. It's totally fascinating. And like the origin story is so great. I wonder if that like weekend away has been novelized because that would be a fun story to read about. I mean, all of these characters are so crazy. I am so interested in Lord Byron as a like rock star poet figure, but yeah, Mary Shelley, she like won the contest. They all thought her story was the most terrifying. And like you said, they also got bored with their, (laughs) their own stories. I think it's, fascinating that this book came from the the mind of a 19-year-old girl. I mean, for many, many reasons. And I I think that's a great reason, actually, to bring it into the classroom, because this book is certainly not pigeonholed in what we would call women's fiction. It's Mm -hmm. so different from a lot of the other classics by, by women. On the other hand, the female characters in this book are nothing substantial or interesting at all, which is kind of a bummer. Yeah. And it's kind of surprising because Mary Shelley herself was quite the radical feminist. She's the daughter of Mary Wollstonecraft. And I mean, you can tell like from accounts of her life that her mother really influenced her, but you can't really see that influence in this book. 
unless you assume that she's perhaps trying to show the plight of women or something. But there's really very little commentary on it or it doesn't read like Jane Eyre where you can see all of the like, yeah, freedom for women kind of imagery and message. So I think that it is really interesting, especially when considering who her parents were. Yeah, totally. Let's chat a little bit. We talked about this horror story origin, and this book fits very nicely into the gothic novel category, but also definitely early science fiction. Let's maybe define those genres a little bit and and the, the ways that the that Frankenstein represents gothic fiction. Yeah, because um, she was entering a movement that already existed. This isn't the first gothic story. She was reading, you know, ghost stories and gothic stories and perhaps some things that might have inspired her. So I don't what what do you tell your students when you're kind of like framing this for the time period for them? So I've done it in different ways. And when the course that that I taught was Brit Lit, it was much easier to talk about this rather than you know, if if it's out of context of the progression of literary movements, I think it's mm-hmm. harder. But gothic literature is basically like dark romanticism. And <laughs> this is just so nerdy. It's, it's uh, very nerdy. We're going there today. <laughs> yeah, we are. Romanticism is a literary movement that celebrated the imagination. It celebrated the natural world. It was very much like a, a reaction against more logical thinking and kind of like letting your intuition tell you what's right and celebrating more the individual and individualism. All of that was part of romanticism. And then the Gothic is like kind of the dark side of that, even extending your imagination further into horror and the macabre and this kind of pleasurable terror that you feel with the supernatural and the unfamiliar and the unknown. We talk a lot about the sublime when we discuss romanticism and the gothic in the English English classroom and the sublime is basically, I'm, I'm sure a ton of English majors and teachers are going to jump on this definition and but I I think everyone kind of has their own <laughs> view of what mm-hmm. the sublime is. It's like the terrifying power and awe-inspiring vision of nature, I guess. Like if we think about like the root of the word awesome, which means mm-hmm. producing awe, uh same root as awful, like that awesome awful natural world is the sublime. That's how I define gothic literature for my students. I mean, <laughs> I think if I were to, de- to define it just in terms of how I would shelve books in a bookstore or library, it might be slightly different. Well, I want to hear more about that then. So, because <laughs> I, I think that's a great, like, I think that's a great definition. That's good literary context for us. And I often think of, I mean, when you're thinking of romanticism, you think of the romantic poets, perhaps, which we are already mentioned, Lord Byron, for example these super moody, imaginative guys who were writing about nature and lust and the the divine and all of these things. 
And then Gothic, like you said, it just takes those things and turns them super dark. But I think the literary definition is perhaps, it has to do with where we would shelve them, but there are modern Gothic novels and they they might not be quite the same as something we see in Frankenstein. So how would you categorize Gothic novels? Like if you have a shelf, because I know you like these. I yeah. like them too. <laughs> if you have your shelf in your house, what are either, what are some examples of titles that you would put on there? Or like, what are the requirements to put them on that shelf? Hmm. I should have brainstormed titles before we started talking. I told you I was the unprepared student today, but I would think of Gothic as kind of moody books with brooding characters who have secrets. The Byronic hero is an element of both, I think, historical Gothic novels and contemporary ones. That's like, think Rochester in Jane Eyre um, or Edward in Twilight, who's based on Rochester. (laughs) But that kind of brooding, handsome, I guess Rochester's not handsome, but brooding male figure with a secret, a dark secret. And often there in Gothic novels is a woman who is the probably the only woman who could get that secret out of him and kind of save that Byronic hero. I, I think that isn't that dynamic isn't necessary for a Gothic novel, but that element of brooding and that element of mystery to me are. Often I think Gothic novels make you wonder if the answer to what's going on here is a supernatural one or a psychological one. I I think that's one of the elements I really like about Gothic novels is how am I going to explain all the weird happenings here? Is it because of something that's happening in the character's mind or is there something otherworldly going on here? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like there's a consistent tug of war in Gothic novels between logic and the imagination and reality and fantasy and nature and kind of trying to control nature. And yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's a great description. <laughs> and Frankenstein fits, fits oh, there. Totally. I My favorite fact about like historical Gothic novels is that they're mostly written by English authors, but they almost all take place in continental Europe because there was this like othering happening there like Mm. those catholics on the continent who knows what goes on in their creepy castles like but don't worry we're safe here in protestant england oh that's funny yeah and then i guess probably the element of escapism and being able to use your imagination because you're not describing just the streets of london you're like taking your readers to a new place where you can be super descriptive and romantic about it oh that's fascinating yeah And of course, we see that in Frankenstein. As you said, it was inspired by a trip to Geneva, but also I think that setting lets Mary Shelley's imagination go wild. They do come to England in Frankenstein for for a bit of the novel, which I think probably is in part to intensify the horror. Like, could this creature still be here? Oh, I like that. Yeah. Um, almost a little bit like the Loch Ness, like people would be going out and looking for Frankenstein's monster on the countryside. Oh, totally. <laughs> so as you were talking about 
ironic heroes and the super moody protagonist. I think we could talk a little bit about Victor because he's real, real moody. <laughs> like really moody. He's so moody. He just, ugh. Yeah, he's kind of a drag as a protagonist. I'm like, he is a little bit. I he's so moody, so broody. I don't really root for him. I I think he's pretty unlikable. I'm not sure if he's supposed to be. I can't figure that out actually. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, like like we said at the beginning, he suffered a major loss as a child. He lost his mother at an early age. But that's not really where his like character turn happens. It's more when he goes off to university. And he just gets so invested in the world of science and living in his books and and in his experiments that he completely forgets about his friends and family. He stops writing them letters. He's not interested in seeing them. And I think part of that is Shelley showing the dangers of isolation and and kind of obsessive focus on knowledge rather than having a balance between the intellect and your relational life. But yeah, I I mean, thematically, I feel like I can pull apart why Victor is the way he is, but as a character, he falls flat for me. I I think it's interesting that for someone who is so fascinated by science and learning about the world or learning about how to reanimate humans or, you know, do something that maybe he he might have thought was for the greater good. For someone who's so concerned about that, he's very turned inward. And the entire book is really about his guilt and shame and mm-hmm. his personal troubles and he just basically takes that out on on the world a little bit. And it it really has so much to do with his inner turmoil of, of guilt and shame over what he's created and what he's done and not taking responsibility for it necessarily. Yeah, he has a lot of shame without taking any responsibility. Yeah, Brene Brown would have a field day with this man. <laughs> so I do think that the way I often read this book is that there is some like level of greater good or at least motivation from his own personal loss that motivates him to seek to create life. But I do have to say that's not in the book. Like he doesn't make that connection himself. He doesn't talk about his grief for his mother and how that led him to trying to create life and, you know, skulking through cemeteries, looking for body parts late at night. He talks about how he wants to be a god. He's interested in creating a race of people who worship him as a god. So, yeah, he's got some ego issues for sure. Mm-hmm. And I I think that, that that god aspect is really interesting because... That was the struggle of society at the moment, right? Science was emerging and humans were starting to have a little more control over certain areas of their lives because of science. I'm talking like historically, like when Mary Shelley wrote this. And the push and pull between, oh my goodness, but if we do these things, are we playing God? Are we 
taking control in a place that we shouldn't. And I think we have those conversations even today about ethics and science. But I think it's really fascinating how that comes out in this book. And of course, to the extreme with him wanting to be this godlike figure creating a race of humans, which is, I think, lends itself to the terrifying. If it wasn't so overdramatic, the book would be even more boring. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that that is one of the most interesting aspects of the book is that those questions about technology and ethics and what humans' responsibility is towards the natural world and 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 what is life? Is life animation or is it something less easy to define? I, I again, like I talked about the the way to the way I found to make this interesting to students is just to frame the whole book as a debate about these various issues. And and I do think in that way it's relevant, which is not to say that there aren't more relevant books you could teach or read that tackle similar issues. But yeah, it still speaks to the questions we're asking about technology and science today. I think that this book would actually be really fascinating to read in a science class or in a psychology course because the language acquisition piece when the creature or the monster is roaming the countryside and learning how to sort of be a human or how to mimic humanity to the best of his ability, he picks up language in a really specific way. And the his developmental periods over the course of the book are really interesting. And there's I think there's a lot to dissect psychologically, but the creature himself, I think is, is really interesting. I agree. And I, I think that if you decide you want to just read a little segment of this, the sections, the chapters that are told from the creature's perspective, I think are much more interesting. Like you said about his language acquisition, how desperately he wants a human being to care about him and to be in community with and how it's really that denial of connection that turns him into this murderous monster. All of that is is so fascinating. All right, Sarah. So aside from we know that Mary Shelley wanted to just create something terrifying, which I think she accomplishes pretty well. We might not find it as scary because of the language that it's written in, but (laughs) Frankenstein would have been super terrifying at the time. I try to tell my students that, and sometimes I believe it and sometimes I don't. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But aside from wanting to just create the best possible, most terrifying story she possibly could, what do you think is perhaps the thesis or the main theme of Frankenstein that either Shelley was perhaps trying to send or that we can just glean from reading with a modern lens? So I think one of the main things that Shelley was trying to achieve was to suggest that there needs to be a balance both individually and as a society between these sort of enlightenment values and romanticism. So that if humans are to veer too much into 
enlightenment, scientific thinking, pure logic, that's dangerous. But also to veer too much into the supernatural, the imagination, the intuition, that's dangerous as well. And that there needs to be this kind of balance. And and, and I think she was, you know, we can look at that as a very historical type of thesis, type of theme. But I do think that that balance is applicable today. Like there needs to be a balance between, you know, indulging your intellectual life and spending time with your friends and feeling your emotions. And and all of that, I think, is is a nice takeaway from this book. I also think she's saying don't play God, like just very like there's like a moralistic takeaway here of there are some things that humans shouldn't touch and trying to create life is one of them. And then the third and maybe most important to me is what she's saying about our tendency to other people or ideas that we're unfamiliar with. And the danger in labeling someone or something monstrous and demonic and evil, because perhaps with those labels, it's easier to become monstrous and evil. I'm going to talk a little bit more about some pushback against that with one of my pairings, though. So that I think is interesting. And one of the reasons that the book gets brought into curriculum a lot is, oh, you know, this is a book about how not to other and how to treat people kindly. And I'm not sure that that's accurate or um, at least it's oversimplifying. I I love everything that you said. And also, <laughs> like, I would, I would, encourage what you said about it being totally applicable to modern life. I think it takes a little more stretching, but I I feel like I've heard this phrase used so often lately where people say it's become Frankenstein's monster and they're referring to something. And what they mean is someone created something and now it's out of their control and it's this big thing now. So one specific instance that I'm thinking of, I just listened to a podcast about social media. And they were commenting on The Social Dilemma, which is a documentary on Netflix. I haven't watched the documentary yet, but I've just like listened to other people talk about it. They were talking about how the creators of social media basically just created this thing that they thought would be fun and a way for people to share their lives with each other. And then they let it go like a free-for-all. And now we have this freewheeling truly a monster that needs to be controlled, but the creators who are the ones who should have put the reins on in the first place are, you know, still allowing it to be this, this big free thing that's doing a lot of damage to society and not necessarily taking responsibility for, for that themselves. So that seems like maybe it's a big leap from Frankenstein to social media, but I, I think thematically it, <laughs> they are the Victor Frankensteins. And I think you can really make some arguments for that. And I think there are other areas of our culture where you could make the same sort of reflection or draw the same comparisons. 
I think that's a great comparison. And we owe all of that to 19-year-old Mary Shelley, who wanted to write a scary novel for her friends, which is so cool. It is really fun to see sort of the birth of science fiction as well, the birth of a genre. So while I only read Spark Notes, I feel like I have a great appreciation for this book. I love the backstory of it. And if anyone feels encouraged to read it, Sarah, do you recommend like skipping around or is there a good audiobook? Like what do you what do you think about this one if people I, are encouraged to read it? I haven't listened on audio, but I think trying any classics on audio is a great idea. And there are often free versions just on YouTube and and stuff if you want to try that. I'm not sure if there's been like a high production value one made. There 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 may very well have been. I definitely think for sure read the spark notes before whether that means just reading the basic summary of the book or i would even say reading the spark notes of a chapter before you read the chapter i think you can skip the letters the walton parts i mean they're thematically interesting but they're so dense and kind of i think keep you from the meat of the story and make it hard to motivate yourself to keep Picking the book back up. And then again, we'll, we'll put these exact chapters in show notes. I think that the chapters to read the most closely are the chapters where Victor Frankenstein is thinking about creating his creature when he starts to piece things together, literally, <laughs> and when the creature comes to life. And then chapters from the creature's perspective all the ones where he like goes on walks with his friend henry and all of those like skim or skip (laughs) i think that's excellent advice all right well before we offer a bunch of pairings for frankenstein as companion reads or something to read perhaps instead let's talk a little bit about today's episode sponsor and our very favorite audiobook subscription service, Libro FM. Sarah, what are you listening to right now? I am doing a reread through a listen, which is something that I love to do. Like if I loved a book and I want to revisit it, but I don't necessarily have time to read it, I'll listen to it. And so I'm listening to Fangirl by Rainbow Rowell. And I'm just loving being back with these characters. And the new Libro FM app is so fantastic. One thing I love is that now if you increase your speed, it tells you how much time you have left in your audiobook at that speed, which is someone who can't do math. (laughs) I really appreciate that. So I'm loving Fangirl. How about you? I just downloaded and started Now That I've Found You by Christina Forrest. And I guess it could qualify as YA. It's more maybe like new adult. The characters are just a little bit older and I'm really enjoying it so far. It it sounds like it's a good week for YA fiction on audio for us. I think so. No wonder we didn't feel like we were in the mood for Frankenstein. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> well, we adore Libro FM over here and we are so pleased to be able to offer our listeners two audiobooks for the price of one. That is two audiobooks for $14.99 with the code Novel Pairings. You can also click the link in our show notes to redeem that offer and fall in love with Libro FM. 
Okay, Sarah, I'm really excited to hear your pairings for Frankenstein. This, I think we've said before, or maybe it's we already recorded an episode that's going to come out later and I'm confused, but (laughs) I feel like we've been on record somewhere, or we will be, saying that scary books are not our thing. (laughs) But I think that we have some really great pairings for people who are into sci-fi or who aren't and just like the themes of Frankenstein. So what do you have for your first pairing? Yeah. So all of my books, I I think are pretty eerie, but not horror. So if that's your reading mood right now, my first pairing is one of my favorite books of all time. I know you're going to be reading it this fall. Never Let Me Go by Kazuo Ishiguro. Okay. So this isn't pairing that I have actually put into practice in my classroom. I've taught Frankenstein and never let me go side by side. And they are such great books to put into conversation with each other. I think never let me go addresses all of the themes that Frankenstein does in a style that's much more to my taste. So while I do think that these books work like astonishingly well together. I would also say this is one to read if you like the themes we're talking about, but horror or particularly dense classic horror isn't your thing. So this book follows three friends, Kathy, and she is the primary narrator, Ruth and Tommy from their childhood to young adulthood. It starts at an exclusive and mysterious boarding school in the English countryside. It's called Hailsham. And the three of them have been best friends at this school for as long as they can remember. The school is an odd place with really odd rules. The things that they are and aren't allowed to do are kind of strange and make you wonder what's going on here. And the children are told frequently that they're very special and they need to take good care of themselves and 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 all of that. So we follow them then as they leave the school, they fall in and out of love, they have their first jobs, and they start to figure out their purpose in life. Much of the book is told from Kathy's perspective as an adult looking back on her childhood and adolescence with the fresh eyes of understanding who she really is, who Tommy and Ruth really are, and what they're on earth to do and what their purpose is. And and to say too much more about why this book pairs well would be a spoiler, but it, it pairs with Frankenstein because of the way it explores ethical questions and boundaries and the way it addresses what makes us human. And it does that like Frankenstein in a really original way that kind of jolts a reader out of their typical perspective and and makes you really question like, oh, how, how do I define humanity? And what is a soul? And what is art? And like, who has access to those things? So yeah, this is one of my favorite books of all time. I know the Modern Mrs. Darcy book club is reading it this season. I'm not sure exactly which month. Maybe you know, Chelsea, but I love this book. It's a great time to pick it up as an eerie, thoughtful campus novel. I'm really excited to read it. And uh, the Modern Mrs. Darcy Book Club, I believe, is reading it in October. So it's good timing. Perfect. 
So that's Never Let Me Go by Kazuo Ishiguro. All right, Chelsea, what is your first pairing? I have a little nonfiction for us. I would like to recommend The Lady from the Black Lagoon, Hollywood Monsters, and the Lost Legacy of Millicent Patrick by Mallory O'Meara. And I really, really enjoyed this book on audio. Mallory narrates it herself. And Mallory O'Meara is a big horror fan. And so I enjoyed reading this. It's not scary. So she talks a lot about horror and she references horror films, but none of it made my heart beat faster. It was like the perfect horror adjacent book for me. So she is a big horror fan and discovered that one of her favorite horror monsters, the creature from the Black Lagoon, was created by a woman, which is a rarity in the horror film genre. And Mallory O'Meara goes through and talks a lot about women in Hollywood. She talks a lot specifically about female directors and writers and even actresses in the horror genre and how the horror tropes affect affect and impact women. And so I really like her commentary on feminism in Hollywood and specifically in horror that she goes through in the book. But that's that's just a framing for her to talk about Millicent Patrick, who went uncredited for a lot of her work, including designing the creature from the Black Lagoon, which could be considered like her big career accomplishment. So the book follows Mallory O'Meara's journey to discover the history of the creature and Millicent's life and to give her some much-deserved credit. And what I love is I really like in nonfiction, especially when people are doing research, I like when they make the research process evident on the page and when they talk a little bit about their research process, because I like that behind the scenes. And that's something that Mallory O'Meara does. And her voice is really charming. I mean, I think it would be on the page just as much as it was on audio. And so I think this is a great horror adjacent book for people who like something kind of creepy, but not too scary and who like a good untold story. So I partly thought of this because of the creation of Frankenstein's monster, of course, just the creating of monsters. And I also thought about how the monster birthed an entire genre. But I also thought that this kind of connected with Mary Shelley and being published anonymously and deserving more credit. Because even when her identity was revealed, people just kind of assumed that her husband did most of the work. So I think that there are a bunch of connections with Frankenstein here. Mallory O'Meara, if you want to hear more about her and more of her horror book recommendations, she was on an episode of What Should I Read Next? And I will add a link to that episode in our show notes because that's a really fun one. All right. My second pairing is Oryx and Crake by Margaret Atwood. This is very much sci-fi and it is the first book in Atwood's post-apocalyptic climate change trilogy. I think it's called the Mad Adam trilogy. I've read all three of the books, but the first one, Oryx and Crake, is my favorite, and I think that you could probably read it and stop. They stand alone fairly well, each book in the trilogy. So this book is so weird. So it starts with a protagonist called Snowman, 
But pre-apocalypse, he was named Jimmy. He's just known as Snowman now. And he is the last human left after a great quote-unquote flood wiped out the rest of the people. I think the flood, well, I so <laughs> this is tough because I can't remember what is a spoiler for this book, like what comes in other books. So I'm just going to say as little as possible. So Snowman lives in the woods with a group of humanoid creatures called the Children of Crake. And these creatures are weird. The whole book is weird, but the creatures are super weird. They were designed to be the perfect humans, human type creatures. They're kind and gentle. One feature that they have is they purr on each other to heal each other's wounds. And they, the way they reproduce is so weird. <laughs> um, and they're just, they're childlike and, and innocent. And they think that snowman is their god and they, they worship him. So throughout this book, Snowman thinks a lot about his life before the apocalypse, before the flood, and he thinks mostly about his best friend, Crake, who created the children of Crake, and a woman named Oryx, who both Crake and Snowman were in love with. So Snowman desperately wants to discover exactly what led to the destruction of the world, so he convinces the children of Crake to go on this mission with him back to the lab where they were created to try and find out what happened. So much like Frankenstein, I mean, of course, the idea of trying to create the perfect human is pulled straight from Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And this book is all about the ways that humans have used technology to try and control nature and extend and improve life and how that's can potentially lead to disastrous results. There is some good and some bad with all of these creations. So all of the books in the trilogy expand on those themes and introduce kind of new horrific technologies. Like I said, I can't remember what's introduced in each book, so I'm I'm not going to share any of them. This book did scare me a little bit. There are scenes that I think about. They're unsettling and creepy, but it's not horror. It's, it's very much sci-fi. And it's also, of course, a powerful look at climate change and the climate crisis that we are are facing now. So this book is super timely. The whole trilogy is. It's one of my favorites of Atwood's. It's one of her weirder series, one of her weirder books. But that is Oryx and Crake by Margaret Atwood. Ooh, that sounds so creepy. It's so creepy. (laughs) (laughs) Margaret Atwood has her issues. I will not shy away from saying that, but she is gifted at writing very prescient details where she can see where we are now and extend those details into someplace really horrifying and scary. And this book is one of her best in terms of that. All right. My next pairing here is a young adult graphic novel, and it releases on October 6th. So when this episode comes out, it will be out and available. But this means that I haven't read it yet. I'm just really excited about it. So the graphic novel is called Mary, colon, The Adventures of Mary Shelley's Great, 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 Great Granddaughter by Brea Grant and Yishan Lee. So... This book is about an angsty teen. Her name is Mary Shelley, and she's named after her 
great, 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 yada, yada, <laughs> grandmother. And she's angsty because her mother and her aunt and all of the women in her life are successful writers. And she comes from this long line of successful writers descended from the original Mary Shelley. But Mary, modern Mary, is pretty sure she's not cut out to be a writer. She hates school. She constantly falls asleep in class. She just kind of feels like she doesn't fit in with her family. And then on a dark and rainy night, (laughs) she discovers this whole new side to herself. She has the ability to heal monsters and they are basically hounding her to heal them and not leaving her alone. So she has some friends and companions to help her, but she has to uncover a dark family secret and save the monster world. So I love how it takes the history of Frankenstein and Mary Shelley and then kind of like twists it in this modern way. It's really fun. I mean, the illustrations look great. I was reading an interview from the author who said that she specifically wanted to collaborate with this illustrator and create these 90s gothic teen images. And that's totally how it comes across. And it's super fun since, you know, the 90s are so back right now. (laughs) So (laughs) I just think that this looks like it would be such a fun book. I think that it will be just the right amount of creepiness for me personally in the Halloween season. And it sounds like it's got great themes. I think that it's important that we have book characters, especially teens or kids who don't love school. And yet, you know, they're in these books. So I I think that that's important for all various types of readers to connect with those characters. And I, I'm just really excited about this one. I've been wanting to pick up more graphic novels, so this seems like it's a good excuse to do so. Okay, well, perfect, because I have another graphic novel for you for my third pairing. So my third pairing is Destroyer by Victor Laval and illustrated by Diedrich Smith. And we typically like don't recommend all that many sequels or retellings or pastiche for our pairings, but there are so many good ones with Frankenstein that we have to throw some of these in here. So this is a graphic novel. The whole series, I believe, is out now. I think it's just six installments and you can buy them all together now. It takes place in present day. And In this reality, Frankenstein's monster, and I am saying monster this time, and I will explain why, has been living in the Arctic for centuries, growing more and more resentful of humanity. Meanwhile, in America, the brilliant Dr. Baker, who's a descendant of Victor Frankenstein, has used her scientific knowledge and her family's secrets to bring her son Akai back to life. Akai was fatally shot by a police officer. This has understandably destroyed Dr. Baker's life. She's keeping Akai a secret, but the U.S. government knows that Dr. Baker knows how to bring people back to life, and so they send 
some agents to her house to bring her back to her lab to do to her her work. So when the destroyer, which is what the book calls Frankenstein's monster, makes his way back to civilization, it starts to become clear that Akai may be the only one who can stop his vengeful plans. And I thought this graphic novel was just utterly brilliant. Like the way Lavelle discusses contemporary social issues through all of the conceits of Frankenstein was so smart. And it's also discussing you know technology and humans' responsibility towards each other, but it's really talking a lot about race relations in America in a really profound way. And one of the scenes that just stopped me in my tracks and I don't have my book in front of me and I couldn't find this direct quote online, but I will take a picture. It will be posted on our Instagram later this week. But one of the characters is talking about Frankenstein's monster and saying how white people can so easily call Frankenstein's monster a creature and they work so hard to see the humanity of that creature but they're so willing to call unarmed black men who are shot by the police monsters. And I just like that scene really hit hard because I had spent so many years trying to get my students to see the humanity of this creature in this book, which I'm not sure the book destroyer was saying is wrong, but just complicating that idea and saying like, if this is, if Frankenstein is the only book we use to teach students about the other and how to humanize someone who's different from us, that's a huge problem. So I think this book is just absolutely phenomenal. It's very much like a comic, like it's produced by Marvel Comics, and that's not typically my genre, but I loved this so much. So that's Destroyer by Victor Laval. That sounds so good. And I think this is a good note since we've been talking about a couple of graphic novels and mentioned that there are so many Frankenstein graphic novels. We add all of our book titles to show notes and then we also include them on lists on bookshop.org. And so I'll include, of course, the graphic novels that we're mentioning in this episode, but also some of the other Frankenstein graphic novels that are just out there and great for supplementing your reading or pulling into the classroom. And I'll put all of those in our bookshop.org list. Oh, that's a great idea. All right, Chelsea, what is your final pairing? Okay. I have a thriller and it's a little like there's a little dash of horror. I read this one a long time ago, so we'll see how well (laughs) I can remember it to describe it. But I really enjoyed The Girl with All the Gifts by M.R. Carey. And this is a book about Melanie. And Melanie, we know from the very first page, is very special. Everyone around her treats her like she's special. Dr. Caldwell says she's our little genius. And every morning she waits in her cell for someone to come and take her to class. And When they take her out of her cell, she has guns pointed at her. They have her strapped down into a wheelchair, and she thinks that nobody likes her. 
And she jokingly says, I'm not going to bite you, but nobody laughs about that. So you never get like a super physical description of Melanie, or at least not right away, but you can kind of guess what might be special about Melanie. And that is super eerie trying to figure out who or what she is. But Melanie loves school. She loves her teacher. She loves all of the subjects. She loves learning. She tells her teacher about all of these things that she wants to be when she grows up and what she wants to do. But her teacher just looks at her like and gets super sad. So she and her teacher have this special relationship. And it's a little bit Matilda-ish, I think. The book kind of reminded me of Matilda at the start. I don't want to say too much more because it gets wild and it's action-packed. But I mean, from the beginning, you know that there's something about Melanie that these people are trying to protect and that she's special. But as Melanie sort of discovers her own power and she starts to learn about this outside world, outside of her cell and outside of basically this compound where they're doing school, she realizes that perhaps she is different from everyone in a way that she didn't realize before. So I think that this certainly matches with Frankenstein in that we have this this main character, Melanie, who is very much like the monster in that she just wants to be loved and she loves learning and she's soaks everything up like a sponge and she thinks of herself as human and yet everyone else treats her differently. And we sort of see what this is doing to her psychologically. But then there's a whole lot of action. So this is very much a thriller. It's fast paced. I don't remember exactly how scary it is. I do know that it's like heart pounding because things are happening. And I I think it, I don't remember if it's gory or not, but I, I really enjoyed this one. So that is The Girl with All the Gifts by M.R. Carey. And I just feel like anything else would give too much away about the book. That sounds so creepy and so good. I don't know that I could handle that much creepiness now, like, Personally, my threshold has just gotten lower and lower as I get older. But several years ago when I read it, I loved it. Okay, good to know. All right. Well, my pick of the week is once again a bonus book recommendation, but very different than my others. So my pick of the week is Mary's Monster by Lila Judge. Have you heard of this book? No. So it's a graphic biography. Is that a, I mean, I feel like graphic novel is such a a phrase, Mm -hmm. but then when I put graphic in front of anything else, it just sounds like a descriptor. Like I'm telling you the book is like really graphic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we get what you mean. Graphic biography told in poems. Ooh. Yeah, It. this book is like the most beautiful book I've ever opened. Like the illustrations are so gorgeous. It's a biography of Mary Shelley's life. And it's all about the losses she suffered. Her parents did not approve of her relationship with Percy. They basically disowned her. She was having an affair with Percy Bysshe Shelley and he was married to somebody else and she got pregnant and her family disowned her. And it just, she suffered a lot. She lost multiple children over the course of her life, 
Her husband died young. And this book really focuses on the tragedies in Mary Shelley's life and how they may have inspired her work, her her book Frankenstein. And the poems are beautiful. The illustrations are just some of the most striking that I've ever encountered in a book. Like it's a book you'll open and and want to have some of those works framed on your wall. I love Mary's monster so much. It really humanizes Mary Shelley, who sometimes we just, you know, think of as this amazing 19-year-old author and and she was that, but she was so much more. So that is Mary's Monster by Lila Judge. That sounds so good. I, think, I feel like I've been saying that after every book we mentioned today. <laughs> I think you would really so like this one. And we won't break any copyright, but we'll also put a picture of an illustration or two from Mary's Monster on our Instagram and blog. So Chelsea, what is your pick of the week? All right. My pick is the TV show Penny Dreadful. It is on Showtime, and I believe that three seasons of it are now available on Netflix. Did you watch this one at all? No, but I know I should. (laughs) So I watched maybe the first season, and then I kind of dipped out. Not that it lost my interest, because it is interesting. I think especially because there are a lot of references to literature, and the history is fascinating. But I do know that my husband continued watching it all the way through and he really enjoyed it. So Penny Dreadful, that name comes from the Penny Dreadfuls, which you referenced earlier in the episode. These were basically just super cheap paperbacks and they were serialized fiction that were available during the Victorian era, I believe. They were several years after Frankenstein. And so this was widely available popular fiction, kind of like the almost the origin for pulp fiction. And so that was the Penny Dreadfuls. So the show sort of resembles the serialized Penny Dreadfuls with these multiple storylines and this gothic suspense and horror. So we do, there is a Frankenstein and his monster plot line that kind of follows more of like the bride of Frankenstein, which is interesting. So there's a whole subplot about that. And then there is stuff about like seances and just everything creepy that you can think of. (laughs) And it's just a very gothic show. So if you are in the mood for something spooky and scary and some gothic horror, I think it would be a great one to binge over the Halloween season. And if you are just interested in another Frankenstein adaptation, I would definitely say that this show is one because it's a significant part of the plot, at least from the episodes that I watched. So that's Penny Dreadful and it is available on Netflix. So it's it feels like the right time of year to watch that one. Totally. I am impressed with our discussion having neither of us not really dived back into this book prior to discussing, but there's just so much relevant and interesting things to talk about with Frankenstein. See, I'm not surprised at all. Who knew that (laughs) us skipping out on all of our high school reading assignments and reading spark notes would prepare us for this moment. It's true. Maybe we (laughs) should learn from this and (laughs) not read some more books. (laughs) 
Well, we cannot wait to hear all about your thoughts and experiences and pairing ideas for Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. Listeners, we'll have a mix of new episodes and reruns for you this season as we both take time to be with our growing families. And we'll be back in your feeds with a brand new book discussion in January as we read Middlemarch together during our break. We'd love for you to join us. You can find details all about that big book we're tackling in our Patreon community at patreon.com slash novel pairings. As always, we appreciate your reviews on Apple Podcasts and whenever you share novel pairings with your friends or on social media. Thank you to Miles Eichner and Mark Anderson for our theme music. We'll be back soon with more bookish discussion. Until then, we declare after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything than of a book. Thank you.